Okay, back to 1 Corinthians. I want to do a little review. You know I love review. I want to get us into the flow of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. So we'll go back to the first teaching out of the book of Corinthians was this thing where Paul began his letter. He said, I want you to know who you are in Christ Jesus. He wanted to remind the Corinthians who, we, who they were in Christ Jesus. And why is that so important? Anybody? Because our identity determines what we do. Our identity determines how we live our life. So the idea is they had to be reminded because they were drifting back. And this is very important for today's message. Sorry, brother. We'll let you get that. Let us know when you're done. Yeah, we have the announcement. Yeah, we need that if we don't remember. So, so who we believe we are is, is how we'll live out our life. So this issue of who we are in Christ. Jesus told them that they were saved by the grace of God. They are being sanctified by the grace of God. And they will be glorified by the grace of God. And he wanted them to put on their identity of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is a big call for every Christian. This is one of the great battles of the Christian faith. Because the world continues to want us to identify with the world. It wants us to put on the identities of the world because if we do that, it detracts from the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you, every day it's a challenge. We have to take off those old worldly identities every morning, take them off, leave them in the closet, and put on those royal robes of Jesus Christ that we're, we're ambassadors for Jesus, we're ministers of reconciliation, we've been saved by grace, we're being sanctified by His grace, and we will be glorified by His grace, and we're supposed to be going out into this lost and dark world to represent Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Tyler talked about this call to unity within the church. Do you remember that? What are the three ones? One, do you have to get your notes out? One voice, one Lord, one mission, right? One voice, one Lord, one mission. Or you could say one, we're supposed to be singing the same song, we're supposed to be following the conductor and make sure you play your part, right? That's what Tyler talked about, Pastor Tyler talked about last week. It's this call to unity in the body of Christ. This call to one voice, this call to the Word of God, which we're going to talk about a little bit today in the text, is really the way we become unified in the body of Christ. See, because if we don't know who we are, if we let the world conform us to its image, then the world teaches independence. Be all that you can be. Get what you can. As Frank Sinatra said, I, I did it my way. That's the, that's the teaching of the world. So if we're not immersed in the Word of God, we will live an independent, self-centered, self-focused life, and we will not be unified in the body of Christ. This, this is the, this is where we talk about Wednesday, this is the language of heaven. We are heavenly creatures. This is not our home. We need to be studying, living, meditating, memorizing the language of heaven so that we're conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ. And I can guarantee you, if we're all in the word as we should be, we will be unified as a body of believers. Because we will think the same way, we'll talk the same way, we'll love the same way. So if we're having a unity problem, we're having a problem of submitting to the living word of God. That's what Pastor Tyler talked about last week. Then next, the way I see this is then Paul digs into this a little deeper with the first topic, which is the one voice. 
he digs into this issue of the Word of God. And what he does is you'll see we're going to look at the differences of the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world, wisdom of man in the text. I have to read a little funny parable to you to kind of set the stage here. A pastor, a boy scout, and a scientist were all passengers on a small plane. The pilot came back to the cabin and said that the plane was going down, but there was only three parachutes and four people. You heard this before? So there's four parachutes, there's three parachutes and four people. The pilot said, I should have one of these parachutes because I have a wife and three small children. So he took one of the parachutes and jumped. The scientist said, I should have one of the parachutes because I am the smartest man in the world and everyone needs me. So he took one and jumped. The pastor turned to the Boy Scout and with a sad smile said, you are young and I have lived a long life, a full life. So you take the remaining parachute and I'll go down with the plane. The Boy Scout said, said relax, pastor. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. So, I thought it was funny. But the picture there, the analogy is, is that's a life lived with worldly wisdom. It's, this man thought he was the smartest man in the world. He lived based on worldly wisdom. And, and because of that, it leads to death. So, that's the analogy. So, I want to start off by setting the stage a little bit more with you about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And the question I want to start with is, what is truth? What is truth? Because if we want to understand what godly wisdom is, we need to define the word truth a little bit amongst ourselves. Now, we could say, are there absolute truths? Yes. And in fact, the world would agree there's some absolute truth, would it not? They would say two plus two is four, and... Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and there's gravity, and on and on we can make a list of, we can make a list of these absolute truths that the world would agree on. But then there's something called relative truth. You know what those are? Relative means what I, what's true for me may not necessarily be true for you, right? Relative truth. Now, what's amazing to me, people don't see the battlefield of the, of the demons and of Satan, but where do we find all these relative truths in the world? Yeah. So here, here's where you're going to find them. You're going to find them as it relates to sin. Most of the relative truths, and, and Tanya said within our minds, the, the, they, 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 they develop these relative truths within their minds. But as you notice, the pr- predominant relative truths deal with sin. Because that's what Satan wants us to do. So, so what do we see? People is, um, let's say, fornication, sexual immorality, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, Right? Those are things that the Bible teaches about. And so what happens within this fallen world is people have these relative truths. And they will say, well, that that might be true for you, that you see that as sin, as you see that as wrong, but I don't. And that goes through countless truths of the Bible as they're minimized, discounted, justified as people live in this sinful lifestyle. So... Those are relative truths that we, that we see 
uh, that the world creates. So let me just show you a few verses. Well, let me help me out with this one. Why did Jesus come? We're just saying about this, but why did Jesus come to this fallen world? Why did God the Father send his only begotten son to this world? Sacrifice. Okay, good. We needed a savior to fulfill the law. Love. Good. Kevin liked that. Good. Love. What's that? To rise from the dead. To conquer death. Good. Good. Take out all our sins. Great. Way to go, Bereans. What? So the Holy Spirit could come. Great job. You're all right. Those are all good answers. Let's dig into this just a little bit before we get in the text. Then this is Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king, Jesus answered. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Do you see that? To bear witness to the truth. What does he mean to bear witness to the truth? Well, we know from his life in the Gospels, he came to bear witness to the truth about God, his Father. He came to bear witness to the truth about man and his sinfulness and his depravity. He came to bear witness to the truth of God's holiness and his righteousness. He came to bear witness to the truth about sin and judgment. In fact, we could continue for quite a long time, but let's just sum it up from 2 Peter 1.3. He came to bear witness to everything pertaining to life and godliness. See, the world that he came into was filled with lies because it was run by the prince of darkness, who was also called the father of Lies. So the world was covered with lies. It was filled with lies. And here comes this bright light, Jesus Christ, to bear witness to the truth. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 14.6 said, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Couple more for you. Then he said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So he's speaking of the Holy Spirit coming, and of course, the first work of the Holy Spirit was to work through the apostles to record the very words of who does it say here? The words of Jesus Christ. He didn't speak on his own. He spoke the words of Jesus Christ. And the the apostles wrote it down, the very words of God, which is how we got the New Testament. Amen? So these are God-breathed. These are the very words of God. Right? So then what happened for us? Then the Holy Spirit not only helped record all of Jesus' words in the Word of God, but now the Spirit lives within us, so when we come to the Word of God, He illuminates the Word to us, He translates it to us, He renews our minds and transforms us into the men and women of God He wants us to be. Amen? So it's truth, truth, the truth of God. And then what does it say here in John 17? Sanctify them in the truth, the Word is, is truth. 
So we're either conforming to the world or we're being transformed by the living word of God, made more in the image of Jesus. And then he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't it true, brothers and sisters, all of us were in chains of slavery before Christ, amen? Now, we were deceived in different ways, we were engaged in different sinful behaviors, but the chains that held us were the same because the chains were the lies of the evil one, right? These chains were just lies of Satan telling us if we did this, drank that, ate this, whatever it was that we were engaged in, that we would get something that we wanted, love, joy, or peace, and those lies were just leading us slowly into our own death. They were lies. The truth sets you free. And what's hard about it for us is that when you come to what we're going to talk about today in the teaching out of 1 Corinthians is that the Word of God does not make sense to natural man. It's not logical, reasonable truths for man in this fallen world. So I'm sure it's happened to you. It's happened to me. It still happens to me. I come to the Word of God, and God's commanding me to do something in my life, some, some kind of obedience to the King of Kings. I'm saying, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem like this is going to work out. Anybody else? But as we choose to believe and obey, what happens? We're blessed. We're set free from the lies of the world. It's another chain taken off of us as we choose to believe the Word of God and, and, and obey it. So the truth sets us free. The truth is setting us free. And the truth will finally, eventually, completely set us free when Christ returns. You good with that? All right. With that, let's open our Bibles We'll get into the text for today. 1 Corinthians 18, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. And please stand for the reading of God's word. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. So let me set this, the context up a little bit with you, and then we'll jump into the text for this morning. But um, the word philosophy is really... when. Uh, Philosophia is really lovers of wisdom. That's what that word means, lovers of wisdom. And that's really who Paul's addressing here because the Greeks of Corinth loved philosophy. It was an idol for them. 
And by the time the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was approximately 15 parties, 15 parties, 15 sects. We could call them 50 denominations of philosophy. That was like the religion of the people. So what would happen is there would be, they, they, and what they talked about, these different leaders, they would talk about the origin of life, the meaning of man, life after death, what all the different gods of Greece meant, which ones they should worship and how they should worship them. So it was, it was like a religion. And so they would get together and they would debate. These different philosophy uh, sects, these groups, these denominations would get together and they would debate philosophy, the origin of man, the meaning of man, and all the rest of this. And whoever had the best argument, they would win more converts to their denomination. Are you with me on this? And also whoever the best orator was, whoever the most persuasive speaker was, they would also win converts over to their, to their philosophy. So this was a problem in the church in Corinth. In fact, we saw it last week. Some follow Apollos, some follow Peter, some follow Paul, because, see, they were raised their whole life in following a man. They submitted their lives underneath a man and his teaching. And as Pastor Tyler revealed last week, they're saying, no, this is not, Paul's challenging them. You don't do that. You don't submit to a man. You submit to Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Pastors are just temporary under-shepherds of a church. You never put your alliance in a, in a man. You put your alliance into Jesus Christ. So that was the problem. But thankfully, in our day, we don't have that problem of these different sects and groups. Demetrius is all over this already. So is Ed. Here's my little book of the Handbook of Denominations. Here's the indication we're, we're not a unified church. There's 35,000 denominations that profess to be Christian churches. In fact, let me just read a few of the Baptist ones for you. The Baptists have a long list. American Baptist Association, American Baptist Churches, Baptist Bible Fellowship International, Baptist General Conference, Baptist Missionary Association of America, Bethel Baptist Ministerial Association, Central Baptist Association, Free Will Baptist, General Baptist, Landmark Baptist, and they go on and on. Now, some would like to think that most of these divisions of denominations is due to specific core doctrinal differences, but they're not. In fact, a lot of the differences and a lot of these breakoffs of the churches is because they've been diluted by the world's wisdom. They bought into the world's wisdom, so they no longer want to follow the Word of God. So they start separate denominations. Something like sexual immorality. They don't, they don't agree with the stance of the Word of God and what it says, whether it's, and I'm not going to set one over another, but it could be, you know, Adultery, fornication, it could be homosexuality as an example. It could be the issue of abortion. But they, they no longer want to come under the word of God, so they start a separate denomination so that they can marry couples that are living in sin, marry couples that aren't following the word of God. So the reason I'm telling you this is that we're probably worse off than even the Greeks were in Corinth as far as a lack of unity and a lack of coming under the word of God. Do you think when we get to heaven, there's going to be 35,000 denominations in heaven? There's going to be how many? One denomination. So we're in the same place. We have the same battle as they did. 
And that's why this teaching is so important for us as well. So let's, let's work our way through the text. He starts off where the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. I want you to picture this. You've got this Greek culture who is raised on this fact that, first of all, that, that everything material is evil and everything spiritual is good. So really, everything in the world, man and everything else in the world, they considered to be evil. Only spiritual things were good. That's kind of the belief of the Greeks in their, in their philosophy. They also believed that all these countless gods they believed in were really kind of disconnected from man. In fact, some of the ways they paint them, they had some of the same sinful patterns that man does. They just were more powerful. And they really weren't interested in man. You had to get their attention or win their favor. Are you with me on this? So somehow through sacrifices and prayers and these things that they would have you do to all these false gods, somehow you, you might get their selfish attention for a minute so that they might give you something that you're looking for. Kind of like writing your list to Santa Claus. And so to that setting, they bring the gospel. And they tell all these Greeks, there's only one true God, creator of all that is seen and unseen. He's your creator. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. And man chose to sin against God and was separated from God. And there was 400 years of silence where God didn't speak to man anymore. And then he sent his son, his only begotten son, who had to leave his place in heaven of great glory and be born into the sinful world filled with his enemies and become man. And then after 30 years of just growing up in this fallen world, he began his ministry of preaching the gospel to this dark and dying world. And he taught things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Greeks were like, what? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Greeks are like, you're kidding me. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and then... He died on the cross. This all-powerful God, the Father, sent His Son to die so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And they're like, that's foolishness. What kind of God are you talking about? What God would sacrifice His only begotten Son to His enemies? It doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it was foolishness to us when we were still perishing. How many times did you hear the gospel and you said, oh, that's good for you? Peter didn't believe the gospel. When Jesus was telling him he had died on the cross, Peter said, it's not going to happen, Jesus. Stay, I got this. We're not going to happen. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. This is the plan of my Father. This is going to happen. So you see what it says next in the second. The, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But what does it say next? But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's a supernatural awakening from God. Only God can open our hearts and minds to the gospel. After Pentecost, Peter goes, okay, now I got it. I understand. The Spirit's living in me. I understand. So the only way anybody can understand the gospel 
is through the power of God. He has to open our hearts and minds to the gospel. Amen? So that's what he's saying here. He's, he's telling them that the, the ways of the world will never figure out the gospel. You can't figure it out. It's a supernatural work of God. That's what he's telling them. And I think we've all experienced this reality. Amen? Have you ever shared the gospel with a lost family member, friend, co-worker? I pray you do that often. But what, what are some of the responses? A lot, most of the time I've received, that's good for you. They're polite, but they want nothing to do with it, right? It's foolishness to them. I, you know, I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to do life my way. Only God can open their hearts. But praise God, I hope that there's been times where you've shared the gospel and someone starts to tear up, they see their sinfulness and they repent, right? And they're born again. Have you experienced that? I pray you have. By the way, I just did a little math this week. We think it's so insignificant, but let's say throughout our whole life we're faithful, we share the gospel with countless people, and out of all the hundreds of people we share the gospel, 10 get saved. Do you know if you do the multiplication that those same 10 people lead 10 people to Christ and then those 100 leave 10 to by the time you get to heaven there could be a 100 I mean a million people in heaven that were saved to those 10 that you talked to the gospel about It's an exponential growth in salvation that's what happens so you think your works insignificant if you save one there could be 100,000 if you save 10 there could be a million by the time we get to heaven pretty significant wouldn't that be a great greeting in heaven? You get there's a million people say, hey, thanks for sharing the gospel with us. So, but the reality is it's a supernatural work of God and there's nothing we can do but be faithful in sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world and trust that God will save those that we speak to. And then he goes on here in the next verse. Look what he says here. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Do you see that? He's really quoting this verse here, Isaiah 29, 14 which says, therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Let me just say this to you in our day. It's known as the information revolution that we're living in. We have more information than any other generation before us. For some of you young people, you may not understand this, but... When we were younger, some of us old people, we wanted to know something. We actually had to look it up in a book. If your family had the book of encyclopedias, Todd just mentioned, the world encyclopedias, anybody relate to those big books? You had, if you wanted to know something about something, you had to go, if you had those, you'd go down in your basement and you'd dig up a world encyclopedia, all alphabetical, and you'd look up a topic. Sometimes they had pictures in there as kids. It was awesome, right? And if you didn't have world encyclopedias, I had... A season of my life where I grew up in poverty, where did we have to go? The library. So you really had to want to know something to, to, to find something out. You had to look up a book and check it out and, and read it. Today, it's, if, if I'm sitting around a family minor, dinner on Sunday, we say, hey, do you know what this is? Yeah, that's uh, Wikipedia. That's uh, this and that. It was uh, 12,000 years ago and blah, blah, blah. We're in an information revolution. We have more information. We know more about science. We know more about the human body. We know more about psychology. We know more about space than ever before. And you can see that it's really changing our world. Not. We still have wars. People are still starving. Right? There's still 
crime going on. People are still being murdered. People are still being raped. People are being used. There's still sex trafficking. I go on and on. The world's not a better place. In fact, if you look at the analytics from people like Dr. Bennett, it's getting worse, not better in most areas. Because the, the solution to the world's problem is not information, it's transformation. The only way this world's ever going to get better, that's why he says it's he goes, the wisdom will perish. The intelligence will vanish. It's never going to solve your problems. You have a sin problem, not an information problem. And this, this quote from Isaiah really is talking about the final truth of this will be at the, at the return of Jesus Christ. I want you to picture this with me. All, everybody's gathered before this great throne of Jesus Christ, and people think, well, well that, that'll be my day in court. No, it will not be your day in court. Because at that moment when we stand before Jesus Christ, there will be a revelation within all of us, and we will all realize that we're guilty before Jesus Christ. And every tongue will be silent, except for the fact that our knees will fall to the ground. And what will we say? Yeah, forgive us, it'd be good. Jesus is Lord, thank you. Jesus is Lord. So at that moment... Everybody that thought they were so smart, like the guy that jumped out of the plane with the backpack, the, the, the scientists, the, psych, the PhDs in psychology, and all the rest of these worldly... It, it'll, it'll be perish. It'll be gone before the throne of grace. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You all doing okay? So then he gives us three illustrations. Look at this. Three illustrations of people of their day which were the the brilliant scientists and the PhDs in psychology. He says, where is the one who is wise? That is a reference to the Egyptian wise men, the soothsayers, the mediums, and the wizards. He goes, where did their great wisdom lead them? Total defeat and destruction. Total defeat and destruction was where their great wisdom led them. Then he refers to the scribes. Those are the, the Old Testament scholars of Israel. And, and he, in their great wisdom, they did not recognize their own Messiah. In their, in their great wisdom, they, they saw the gospel as foolishness. And in their great wisdom, they crucified them, their Messiah. And the third group, where is the debater of this age? That's the great wise men of Greece who are receiving this letter. And the great wise men in Greece, the great philosophers and debaters, where did their wisdom lead them? They saw the gospel as foolishness. And so he says... Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Man's wisdom will never lead anyone to salvation. So what he says, look next here, he says, For, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's important. It pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. I love this. So what is he saying? He's saying that, the wisest people in the world aren't necessarily going to be saved. In other words, the gospel wasn't laid out so only the smart people can figure it out and get saved. In fact, my gospel is so simple that a child can understand it and be saved. That's the point of it. So, you know, if you sit, if you sit down with a child and talk to them about sin and stealing a cookie or lying to mom and dad, you, you can see the convictions of the laws written on their hearts that they, they can sense that it's, it's, it's really wrong before God. 
And even a child can understand that and come into a saving relationship. Isn't it wonderful that the gospel is for all those who will believe? And then he finishes up here, he says, For the the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You know, the Jews were always looking for more miracles. So the gospel was a stumbling block for them that... You know, Jesus had healed everyone of everything. The blind could see, the lame could walk, the lepers were cleansed, he rose the dead. And his ultimate miracle was he says, I'll be like Jonah, you're going to crucify me and bury me, and on the third day I'll rise again. And that happened too. They still didn't believe. They didn't believe because they were trusting in worldly wisdom. They had been told from generation to generation that when the Messiah comes, he's going to sit on David's throne. And they were waiting for him to sit on David's throne and restore Israel to its glory days. So when, the, when they told him the gospel that Jesus came to die on the cross, that was considered a curse to the Jewish people. There's no way our Messiah would die on the cross. He's going to sit on David's throne and return this to glory. Even though they knew Psalm 22, they knew Isaiah 53, they knew that the word of God clearly talked that there was a suffering Messiah that was coming to die for the people. But they, they read those scriptures through the their own worldly wisdom and refused to believe them. The Greeks, on the other hand, as I've already told you, they believed in all these false gods and that they weren't that interested and, and, they, and so they, they, they saw the gospel as foolishness. We, we are designed to make sacrifices to God. God's not going to make a sacrifice for us. It's foolishness. Stumbling block. But then he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's beautiful, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, isn't it wonderful that he, he does save some? He does save some. And they said, the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. In other words, God has a wonderful plan for salvation. Let me close with some application for you. Colossians 2.8. You know, the problem with philosophers, by the way, is I, I like what Francis Schaeffer says. It says, man cannot begin with himself and arrive at the ultimate reality. And that was the problem with all the wise men. They began with themselves. They looked at the world through their own eyes. And you'll never get to the gospel. You'll never get to reality when we're focused on ourselves. So Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that none of you takes, you ta- none of you, no, we'll start again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See, what was happening in, in the church was the same thing in Corinth, is these people were set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were returning to their slavery. They were going back to man's wisdom and man's ways. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't return to that. Don't return to the ways that you came from. Now, just a few more. You're doing great. Here's some more teaching on the same thing. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way to death. If you lean on worldly wisdom and man's wisdom, it'll lead to death. And there's three types of death. There's physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. And if you continue to live the way of the world, you will experience all three of those unless you are saved. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Proverbs 2.6, For for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. 
And when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The point is this, brothers and sisters, every day we have a choice. We have a choice to make on whether we're going to be coming under God's wisdom or coming under man's wisdom. Let me ask you this question. What would happen if you ate one meal a week? Die? Yeah, okay, sick, die. Can you live on one meal a week? You can't live on one meal a week here either. If you are not feasting on this word daily, you are, I can guarantee you this, you're conforming to the world. You may not know it, but you're putting on worldly wisdom. You need to be in here every day, reading, studying, meditating, praying over the scripture, submitting to it, obeying it, doing battle with it every day. How do I live this out? You should have in your pocket different scripture verses you're memorizing every day. You should always have verses you're working on, struggles in your life. That Are you doing all this? That's the only way you're going to live the victorious life. It's a serious battle. It's a serious call. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that the Oasis Church is returning. We hold up all of our dear brothers and sisters that are still battling loneliness, quarantine. And we pray, dear Father, that you would convict each one of us in the depths of our soul that we'd be men and women of the Word of God, that we would not trust in man's wisdom, but only in your wisdom. Help us to, to live in your Word and become what you want us to be in Christ Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.